0: Thank <laughs> you. Hello, hello, do come in. You're a bit early for the party, but welcome back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. You've caught me preparing for the soiree this evening. I'm hosting an Oscar viewing party. Here, let me have the staff rehearse their marks with you so they'll be ready from when my guests arrive. I have here, as you can see, a selection of capes and wraps. Some of the more fabulous items from my wardrobe. Go go ahead and peck one out. Oh, oh my, yes, I love how that brings out your nose. Now, flaunt your walk down the red carpet to the main gallery, if you would. And my staff will rush forward with their cameras and... Yes, there's nothing quite like the flare of a flashbulb, and that delightful lingering odor. I was lucky enough to find a case of Sylvania Blue Dot Magic Cubes last year, and have been, been saving them for tonight. Pity they can only be used once our featured exhibit comes from Paul R. Hardy, who is currently on a quest to find the adorable pets' eccentric family members and amusing work history required in an author biography. He occasionally takes short breaks to write stories for venues such as unidentified funny objects, diabolical plots, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod. It will be performed by Mr. Matt Dovey.
1: Twilight of the Electric Shadows Written by Paul R. Hardy Narrated by Matt Dovey Douglas Mortimer strode in from the blizzard like a snow-blown angel of death dressed all in black from his cowboy boots to his gaucho hat. The snow gusted in around him until the mechanism slammed the glass door shut, cutting off the squall. But even with the snow gone, there was still a seething dance of particles all over his face and body. The film grain made him seem as rough as sandpaper against a backdrop of pool tables and beer signs in a dimly lit bar that was rendered in deep, smooth shades. It was as though he would walked out of an old spaghetti western and into a film from the late 20th century, which he more or less had, except that both films were long since ended and he was here to meet me in one of the sets that was left behind. He scanned the dark corners of the bar, eyes ranging back and forth until his gaze fell on me. He had the look of an assassin, with small sharp eyes, a hawkish nose and a trimmed grey moustache. He'd been a bounty killer in his film, a ruthless hunter who tracked down criminals and executed them without mercy or compassion. 50 years in the screen worlds had moderated his lethal ways, but he still looked like the killer he was when his film was first released, save for the signs of age that became obvious as he walked towards me. Dust and dirt swirled over the top of the grain, growing worse with every step he took. The flurry thickened into a storm Accompanied by a crackling noise as the dirt swarmed across his soundtrack. A bright green scratch ran in a straight line down his long black coat, then was joined by a cue dot that quivered on the side of his hat. He opened his mouth to speak, but was interrupted by a jump cut that skipped him forward to the booth where I was sitting. His soundtrack thumped, and he offered me his hand. Mr. Thoreau? he asked. That's me, I said, with a concerned frown. ''Are you alright?'' ''Nothing but a real change,'' he said as the crackle and dirt subsided. ''Happens to us all in the end. Well, not to you digital folks.'' ''Not exactly, no,'' I said, standing and shaking his hand. Douglas was one of the main characters in For A Few Dollars More, a western which had its English-language release back in 1967. He'd asked me to meet him at a bar on the outskirts of Fargo, the capital of the winter locations. It was actually a mashup of several bars from the 1996 film and was less popular since the 2014 TV spin off added a host of new locations to the town. That made it the perfect place for a discreet meeting with a journalist. Can I call you Douglas? I asked. Doesn't bother me, he said, sitting down in the booth and reaching into his jacket for his meerschaum pipe. Long as you don't mind my smoking. No, not at all but I do have a question before we get going. Go ahead. Why me? He smiled a little. Well, Mr. Theroux, call me Louis, please. He struck a match on the side of the booth and lit his pipe. The tobacco smelled sweet. Well, Louis, he said, I guess what it comes down to is this. I like your work. Thank you. He pinched out the match and dropped it in an ashtray. That article you wrote on Yellowface in particular. He was referring to a piece I'd done on people from the early days of Hollywood who were supposed to be Asian, but were played by white actors in makeup. The practice itself was clearly terrible, but the electric shadows that resulted still considered themselves to be Asian, despite being seen by many as living symbols of racism. What was it that interested you? Well, they were made wrong, but they didn't know it. Then the world changed for the better and. They couldn't change with it. Okay, I said with a nod. And is that how you feel, about your life? No, he said, taking a puff on his pipe and looking at me over the table with a steady gaze that never wavered as he waited for me to speak. I should have known, a character from a spaghetti western wouldn't simply say what was on his mind. Okay, I said, breaking the silence. So I suppose we're going to find these... What was it you said in the letter? Nitrate folks? That's right. People from the silent days. Still on nitrate stock and I guess you know how easy that burns. I've never actually seen it happen. Most digital folks haven't. That was the second time he'd mentioned my origins. A lot of people his age seem to think my digital background means I'm somehow less of an electric shadow than they are. Still, I guess you can't help being young. I wasn't sure if that meant he was digiphobic or not, but he was polite, at least. I gave him a polite smile back. There's not many nitrate folks left, he said. Some of them come to the winter locations to stay cold, but the locals don't want them here. Too dangerous. Might just burst into flames anyway. There's a party came by a couple of weeks ago. Got the kind of welcome you'd expect. So, now they're out in the snow somewhere. We're going to track them down and call in social services. "'or clean up the ash, most likely the second one.' "'Fair enough,' I said. "'So what are you going to do with the ash, if we find any?' "'Sell it,' he said. "'United Artists pays well for silver nitrate, and they put it to good use. "'Doesn't that strike you as maybe a little ghoulish?' "'People say that. What do you think about it?' "'He gave me a leathery look through a rising cloud of tobacco smoke. "'I think it'll be put to good use.' And you'll make some money? A little. And you don't have any qualms about it? Sure I do, he said, taking a puff on his pipe. So why do you do it? He shifted the pipe in his mouth. You'll see when we find them. You can't just tell me. No, you have to see it for yourself. I frowned. That sounds a bit... cryptic. It's the only way to understand... Understand what, exactly? You'll see. He took the pipe from his mouth and frowned. I guess you think I'm talking in cliches. Well, I didn't want to say it, but older electric shadows did have that tendency. It's the truth, is all, he said. You need to see them, what's become of them. Then, you'll have your story. My first assumption on receiving Douglas's handwritten invitation was that he wanted to blow the whistle on New age trade in silver nitrate ash. But it was hardly a secret. Exposes have been written before, and yet the trade goes on. So what did he really want me to write about? I decided to do some research before I travelled out to Fargo for my meeting with Douglas, and paid a visit to the United Artists Preservation Studio to get a sense of why they offer cash for the mortal remains of Electric Shadows. I was met by a PR officer who turned out to be a middle-aged version of Mary Pickford from a black and white 1940s newsreel, some 25 years after her heyday as an actor in silent films. She gave me a brief tour of the facilities and then we sat down with a curie coffee fresh from an advert. I listened as she gave me the sales pitch. There's a great deal we can do to improve quality of life for those experiencing substrate decay, she said, speaking with a mid-Atlantic accent that only ever existed in films. But for those of us who began our lives on nitrate, there's really only one solution, and that's reprinting onto a polyester base. I take it that's something you've been through yourself? She smiled. Yes, it is. How does it work? Well, first of all, we remove as much dirt as possible with an ultrasonic process, and then we use wet-gate optical technology to transfer the image onto a polyester base with a fresh silver emulsion. Is that silver nitrate? Isn't that dangerous? She chuckled, no, 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 there's so much misunderstanding around the term nitrate, and it doesn't help that there are two kinds of it used in filmmaking. Firstly, there's the silver nitrate emulsion, which reacts to light and forms the image, and that's perfectly safe. We all use that, well, unless you're from an electronic format, like yourself. Then I'm afraid there's the second one, the transparent film base used before 1950. That kind of nitrate is extremely flammable, and if it isn't kept in climate controlled storage it becomes unstable. Then once it catches fire, there's absolutely nothing you can do to put it out. That's why it's so important to transfer to a polyester base. Incidentally, preservation isn't just an issue for film. Television and digital formats are a problem as well. What was it you originated on? Digital Betacam, I said, about 20 years ago. Ah, was that a location shoot? Those who are filmed with portable equipment are sometimes a little more vulnerable. Well, I was a documentary presenter, so yes, but it's probably a little soon for me. If we can go back to film for a moment? Yes, of course. That first kind of nitrate. Do you absolutely need to use recycled silver to make the image? I'm afraid so, and for the same reason we can't use cameras in the screen world. We can only make new images by recycling the materials used in old ones. At least in this case, there's therapeutic value in doing so. She smiled again. So you must need an awful lot of silver. We do, but we're not facing any supply shortages at the moment. Where does it come from, if you don't mind me asking? Well, historically, our biggest source has been from mining operations on the sites of old nitrate panoramas. But haven't they been mined out by now? Most of them, yes. But we do hold a substantial stock. The thing is, I've heard that you also buy silver nitrate on the grey market. She paused and gave me a knowing smile. I think I can see what you're driving at. Let me put it this way. We're here to save lives, Mr. Theroux. Yes, we buy silver nitrate from any legal source we can find. Some of that is from people who sadly reach the end of their lives as electric shadows. We use the silver from their remains to give others a new lease on life. We think that's important. Do you ever find it troubling? By now, she was wearing her most professional smile. No, we view it as something akin to organ donation in the real world. I see. And when you went through the process yourself, did you know where the silver came from? There is such a thing as patient confidentiality, she said, in a lightly scolding tone. But yes, in my case, it was silver from another electric shadow. How does that make you feel? her smile softened. Grateful, for the extra time I have been given. I followed Douglas out into the parking lot, where the weather had subsided to a mere bitter chill and the snow crunched dry and sharp beneath our boots. OK, he said, leading me to his snowmobile. Stow your gear in the back and climb in the front. It was a Canadian model that looked as though the designers of the Citroen 2CV had crossed a minibus with a snowcat. Douglas noticed me staring It's a snowmobile, Louie Bombardier B12 Came out of a corporate film What were you expecting? Horses? Well You ever travelled any distance on horseback? I can't say that I have So you've never had one go lame on you? Not really, no Then I guess you don't know how hard it is To put an animal out of its misery When it's an electric shadow Oh, right I see a bullet wouldn't do it. That would only make a hole in a single frame. Projectionists do worse when they punch out Q-dots. Although if it were a nitrate horse, then I suppose- all oh, the nitrate horses burn up a long time ago. Get in, Louie. So I stowed my gear and climbed up into the passenger seat. The cabin had the bare look of a car from the 60s or 70s, adorned only by the absolute minimum of controls. Behind us, the rest of the interior was packed with equipment and belongings. There was a bedroll in there as well. You don't sleep in here, do you? I asked as Douglas boarded from the other side. Only when it's cold outside, he said, hanging his hat on a goat horn fixed to the wall panel behind him. He turned the key and made the engine at the back of the snowmobile shudder into life, then crunched the gears into place and drove out of the parking lot onto a road that was barely visible under the snow. So what brought you to the winter locations in the first place? I asked. I had a job offer, so I stayed. It's work that kept you here? Guess so. But you're retired now. Wouldn't you want to go back to somewhere warmer? I mean, your film was set somewhere around the Mexican border. You're a journalist, right, Louis? Yes. So I guess you lugged me up already? Sure, but… Then you know all there is to know. I doubted that was the case. Although I had found some articles in the newspaper archives about his appearance as an electric shadow back in 1967. Most of it was moral panic about the new, violent Westerns coming out of Europe and the electric shadows who came with them. They weren't welcome in mainstream Western settings, so Douglas emigrated to the winter locations and took a job as a police ranger. Finding anything on him in the last few years had been more difficult. There was a small notice on page 9 of the local paper about his retirement, but that was it. I was just wondering why you're tracking down nitrate people in your retirement. It sounds like a full-time job. Sure, better than sitting around doing nothing. So it's a hobby, then? You could call it that. What would you call it? I'd call it a job that needs to be done. But why? You'll see. I sighed. He was as good at killing conversations as he used to be at killing people. So, where are we headed first? I asked as the snowmobile reached the highway out of Fargo, passing under the shadow of a giant fiberglass statue of Paul Bunyan with his axe on his shoulder. Beyond that were signs to places like the Outlook Hotel, the Piz Gloria restaurant, and the 1988 Calgary Olympic bobsled one, with highways running out into a featureless expanse of snow. Well, normally I'd make a circuit of all the nearby locations, he said, with a crackle rising under his voice. But from what I hear, the nitrate folks have already moved on. The crackle grew louder. I turned to look and saw dust swirling on his face. 35mm film reels only last about 20 minutes and he was about to hit another splice. So, I'm going to cut to the chase and visit an old… I couldn't make out the rest. His words were lost in noise as the green line zipped down his body again. I clutched onto the door handle and braced for a crash. He glanced over as the Q-dot obscured his balding head for 4 frames before he hit the jump cut and his soundtrack thumped. His hands shifted position on the wheel, and the snowmobile jerked slightly, but all that really changed in the cut was his expression. He now had a slight smile on his face. Worried about something, Louis? he asked. A little, I said, letting go of the door handle. I can get around just fine, if that's what you were thinking. It doesn't bother you at all? No? But you have to be careful, surely? He sighed. You're asking a lot of questions, really? Like you said, I'm a journalist. Well, maybe you'll do me the favour of holding your peace for a second. We're never going to get anywhere if you don't leave a gap for a scene change. Oh, right. Sorry. I'll stay quiet. Good, he said. Because it's a long way to Siberia. And the next thing I knew... We were there. All around us stood the snow covered pines and larches of a boreal forest. The sky was a fresh, clean blue with thin clouds wisping toward the horizon. I had no memory of the journey, although it felt as though several days had passed. It was little different to any of the other long distance journeys I've made as an electric shadow, except that something had happened during the missing days. A smell had settled into the cabin on top of the heavier scent of stale tobacco. Is that vinegar? I asked. Douglas applied the brakes and brought the bombardier to a halt. He stared out of the window. Douglas, I said, but he raised a hand to silence me. We're here, he said. I looked through the windshield and saw a man in furs and fish skins with a modern rifle slung over his shoulder, raising a hand in welcome. He doesn't much like strangers, said Douglas. Best you stay inside. But what about, ask me when I come back? He opened the door and climbed out, letting in the freezing air and flushing out the whiff of vinegar. I watched as Douglas tramped over to the hunter and shook his hand. He looked to be as old as Douglas was when he was filmed, although he didn't suffer from nearly as much damage. I was sure I'd seen him somewhere before. A documentary, perhaps? The hunter pointed off down the trail and Douglas consulted the compass to be sure of the direction. Then they made an exchange. The hunter handed over a fur bag, while Douglas gave him a small hinged case in return. The hunter opened it and put on a new pair of spectacles. He grinned and made a thumbs up sign. The prescription must have been spot on. They shook hands again, and Douglas headed back to the snowmobile. Who was that? I asked. That's Dursu, said Douglas, climbing in and starting up the engine. He's a hunter, but his eyes are bad and he can't hunt without glasses. So I swing by every year or so with a new pair and save him a trip to Masterfilm. Why, does he stay out here? I asked. Wouldn't he be better off living in the town? The man he's based on in the real world did that, that's how he died. Anyhow, he says our party of silent folks came through a couple days ago, told me which way they went. Oh, good, I said as Douglas put the pedal down, turned the wheel, and drove us off in the direction the hunter had indicated. But, uh… but you wanted to ask about something else. When we stopped, Douglas, I could smell vinegar. He sighed. You want me to open a window? Was it you? It took him a while to answer. So you smelted, it, huh? How long has this been going on? A while now. Have you done anything about it? Have you seen anyone? He shook his head. I figure, I've still got time. "'Douglas, you're dying,' he nodded. "'I guess so.'" The safety film that replaced nitrate was made of acetate. It doesn't burn, but it still has problems. That's why it was replaced in turn by polyester. Acetate breaks down over time, sweating acetic acid and giving off a characteristic vinegar smell. Then the acid eats into the film itself and turns it brittle. Eventually, it falls to pieces. Have you talked to anyone at UA? I asked. No, he said. They can help. For a price. Douglas was filmed in colour, but it could still be reprinted with the same silver nitrate used for monochrome electric shadows. The only problem being that he'd need three layers of it to replicate the technicolour process. Costs would be far higher. Is that why you're finding nitrate ash for them? To afford the treatment? No, that only pays for food and fuel. Then why are you doing this? Why are we out here? A horrible thought struck me. Douglas, did you ask me to come with you so there'd be someone here when you died? He darted a surprised look at me. What? Because if that's the case, I really wish you'd told me about it before we started. He sighed. Louis, I didn't invite you out here to watch me die. Then why did you ask me out here? This, he said, handing over the fur bag that Dersu gave him. I pulled the leather drawstring. Inside was a small pile of wet grey ash that smelled like burnt biscuits. Is this people? I asked. That's right, nitrate people. They come here for the cold, but they still feel it. They've probably lit a fire to get warm. You can guess how that went. Oh, that's that's terrible. He nodded. You're getting the picture. Is this all of them? I mean, is this what we came for? No, that's just one or two. We still have to find the rest. I sighed. The snowmobile rumbled on through the trees. So where are we going now? I don't know. But i guess I'd say it's somewhere that doesn't exist in the real world. Different planet, maybe. Or a different time. You don't mean a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, do you? I asked. He gave me a puzzled look. Sorry, I mean, are we going somewhere like Hoth? He shook his head. Uh, too many tourists, on hath. Dangerous wildlife. Silent folks don't go there if they know what's good for them. We're headed somewhere else. And then we were in the middle of a snowstorm. Driving winds battered the windshield, and the trees had vanished. Snow spread in all directions until it merged with clouds at the barely visible horizon. Something else had changed as well. There was a blue tint of the snow that hadn't been there before. Filming shorthand for a truly frigid environment... Whoever made this particular movie wanted us to be in no doubt as to how cold it was. What is this place? Antarctica? I asked. Douglas turned an eye to an old mercury thermometer taped to the windscreen. It's 30 below. Could be. Maybe it's something else. Something else? Something unnatural. It's not Narnia, is it? I asked. Or Westeros? Maybe. Maybe not. Pale blue shadows emerged from the snowstorm darkening as we rumbled closer over snow and ice. After a while, they resolved into a diorama of a woman among angular rocks, half buried in the snow and lifting an object into the air with one arm. We kept rattling on until the scale became clear. She was bigger than I first imagined, much bigger. She was a massive statue holding aloft a lamp and carrying a stone tablet, wearing a seven-rayed crown about her head and flanked by container ships frozen into the ice. That's not the Statue of Liberty, is it? I said, squinting. Looks like it to me, said Douglas as the air cleared. Spikes of ice trailed to the side of Lady Liberty, as though she had been lashed with massive sprays of water that froze instantly. It was almost cartoonish. The vessels around her were just as icebound, one of them caught in the act of capsizing, with its bow beneath the ice and its stern towering above the snowfield. We were in the upper bay of New York, home to Liberty Island and Ellis Island. Not that you could tell. An ice sheets had been laid across the bay, raising us up by a dozen metres or more. We carried on past the statue and the stranded ships and saw the skyscrapers of Manhattan, visible as blue-grey stubs in the distance. Recognize it?'' said Douglas. ''New York?'' I said. ''I meant the film, Louis.'' ''Well, I don't see the World Trade Centre, so it was probably made after 2001. I was already in Electric Shadow by then, so I would have missed it.'' He raised a pair of binoculars to look closer. ''You think maybe it's a backdrop?'' I asked. ''Should we be searching these container ships out here? Maybe the statue as well?'' He lowered the binoculars. ''Everything out here is a mad painting,'' he said. ''Oh, whatever they call the digital version. If we go inside the ships, they'll be hollow. But take a look at the city.'' He handed me the binoculars, and I gazed at the buildings lined up behind the tip of Manhattan. I was sure I could see brush marks in the blue-tinted snow encrusting every last skyscraper. They were probably map paintings scanned into a computer, just as he said. But rising up behind them in Midtown was one building which looked far more detailed despite the distance. The Empire State. It seems to be different in Midtown, I said. Is that what you mean? Do you think that's where they are? It's where we're going to look first, he said. We drove into the city, rumbling through the shadows between the frost-bound towers. There was a noticeable drop in resolution as we passed between buildings, whose walls were repeating patterns without any wear or tear. The pixels were the size of my hand in places. We paused once, seeing a burn mark that had eaten a ragged gap in the side of a building. A party of nitrate folk could stop there to take shelter in the lee of the wind, and at least one of them did so for the last time. We looked, but we couldn't find any ash. They must have fallen into the cavernous space within the empty shell but there were tracks that led further uptown before they were obscured by the driving snow, so we carried on. We rolled through into Midtown and found the visuals improving as we went. Our destination turned out to be a little short of the Empire State. There was a block-sized gap in the Forest of Towers, one whose surrounding structures were even more detailed than the famous old skyscraper. In between them was an empty field of snow, devoid of buildings. You recognize any of this? asked Douglas. I think it's Bryant Park, I told him. The public library must be buried under that end. There's a few films that use it as a location. Maybe that's what we're looking for? Maybe it is, if we can get in there, said Douglas. It turned out that we could. Just past the next snowbank, we found the roof of the library poking out of the drifts and a depression in the snow that exposed one of the walls, leading all the way down to an open window. That's our way in, said Douglas. Seems a bit obvious, I said. Douglas shrugged. I guess it must have been a popular film. Why do you say that? Whoever writes these things likes to make it easy for the slower folks so they don't have any trouble following the story. Makes my life easier too. We left the snowmobile behind and made our careful way down the slope to the open window and peeked inside. It looked like the main reading room, familiar from Ghostbusters if nothing else. There were stately desks, reading lamps, chandeliers, bookshelves on every wall, and a balcony of an ornate balustrade, all of it rendered in frosty blues and whites. A pile of snow led down from the open window to the floor below. We secured ropes to the window frame and rappelled down the slope, although we could have just slid down the snow. It looked as though the nitrate folks had done so before us, leaving a series of furrows all the way down to the ground, but Douglas was being careful. He left the ropes in place so we could make a swift exit if we had to. Inside the air was chillier than ever, the build of snow didn't extend far from the windows, but even so, there was a pattern of heavy frost on the floors, the shelves, the walls, the ceiling, everything. All the moisture had been frozen out of the air and dusted onto each and every surface. There was a mass of footprints in the frosted floor, and our own boots added to the confusion as they made a crunching sound that echoed around the cavernous room. ''This is getting a bit creepy,'' I said. ''I've seen worse,'' said Douglas. ''What could be worse?'' Nazi zombies? Okay, that's worse. Just stay behind me if you're worried, he said, as he headed for the doors into the rest of the building. We passed on through into a maze of corridors. The daylight didn't reach that far, so we switched on our flashlights. The beams of light revealed twinkling ice crystals on wood-panelled walls and a clear line of footprints in the frost. Douglas put a finger to his lips and I nodded. We crept onwards until we came to the end of a corridor where a set of double doors leaked light around the edges. Douglas motioned me to stay back and approached alone. He tried the door. It opened and he let it swing wide. I heard movement in the room beyond, the noises of a shivering group of people, floorboards creaking, slight movement, but no voices. You can come in, Louis, said Douglas. We found them. I went to the doors and looked inside. Twenty or thirty people were huddled among stacks of books. I could just about make out faces behind blizzards of dirt and constantly shifting scratches. Chinagraph scrawls writhed down their bodies and cue dots flickered from moment to moment. They juddered with a continual palsy of jump cuts that never ended. They were black and white, of course, and utterly silent. I couldn't even hear them breathing. There was just the creak of their chairs and the rustle of the blankets they'd wrapped around themselves. They cowered away from us and Douglas raised his hands to calm them. But it wasn't his gesture that gave them reassurance. Dirt and dust whirled on his body and his soundtrack crackled as the green line and the Q-dot appeared. Finally, the jump cut shifted him in place left him with his eyes sad and cast down. The nitrate folk looked among themselves, their expressions unreadable behind the squalls of dirt. But then one of them stood and I could just about recognise a face framed by curls a smile that melted hearts a century before. It was Mary Pickford, a younger version from one of the silent films where she sealed her reputation as America's sweetheart. Her smile stayed fixed on her face longer than was necessary for a greeting. Maybe it was the only expression left on her reel. She stepped forward, took a chair and sat at the table, indicating that Douglas should do the same. He sat with her and reached into his jacket for a notepad and pen then wrote a message and showed it to her. She read it, and it occurred to me for the first time that they couldn't hear us. People in silent films always seem to be able to hear each other speak, but that grace did not extend to Douglas or me. She looked back up at him after reading his message and replied in her own fashion. Her head flickered and changed into a flat black title card bearing words in an ornate font, obscured by film damage, but still readable. We don't want to die. Douglas nodded. I know, he said, then wrote the same words on his pad and showed her. Mary's head returned to its normal smiling shape. He turned the page on the notepad and wrote a longer message, then held it up for her to read. She replied with another title card. Social services can't help us. Please don't call them. Douglas nodded again and wrote another message for her. She replied. UA can't help us either, we're too far gone. He wrote again and showed her the message. She replied, No, we don't want to live the rest of our lives in a refrigerated cage. He wrote another message, a long one. I wanted to lean in and look, but I was worried I'd spook them. He held up the message. She read it, then looked up at him. She turned back to the others and spoke silently with them. They made replies, some of them with title cards that were barely visible through dirt and scratches. She looked back at Douglas and her smile dropped. She nodded. She might have been crying. I couldn't tell. He nodded in return, stood and took his notepad away. Then he took a small object from within his jacket and placed it on the table. A box of matches. Louis, it's time for us to go, he said, and ushered me out of the room. Out in the corridor, I tried to ask him what was in his message, but there was no time. We had to leave the building at once. We hastened back to the reading room and scrambled up the ropes, then dashed through the drifts back to the snowmobile. Douglas backed the old bombardier a few dozen yards further from the library before he switched off the engine and slumped in his seat. What did you say to her? I asked in the frozen silence. Just told her what their options were. What were they? Whether or not they could choose the moment? But they won't. I mean, surely. Gouts of fire burst from the windows of the library, turning the building into a brief, angry flamethrower. Then they subsided, deadened in the chill air. I tried not to gape. Is this... Is this what you wanted me to see? He nodded. Yep, this is it. He sighed and got out, heading to the back of the snowmobile and opening up the side door to take out some gear. I climbed out and went round to join him. Douglas, I said, what will you do when your time comes? He glanced at me then took a step back and looked up at the sky beyond the towers. I guess I'll head out into a nature documentary if I still can. Find a cliff looking out over a forest. Then wait until I can't hold myself together anymore. Let the wind blow me away. Scatter my silver over the trees. Do you need any help? Is there anything I can do? He shook his head. No. You're sure? I don't need help, Louis. I just want you digital folks to understand what it's like for them. For us. He looked back at me. It's not as though you're ever going to have to face this. He hefted a shovel and took a roll of trash bags from the back of the snowmobile. Stay here, he said. There might be fires inside. Could be dangerous. No, I said, reaching for a fire extinguisher. I'll help. Then later, when it was all over and we'd driven back to Fargo and said our goodbyes, I returned to my room at the Blue Ox Motel and poured myself a drink. Once I felt sufficiently sorry for myself, I stood in front of the mirror and lifted up my shirt to look at my scars. They're not really scars. They're compression artefacts, little glitchy reminders that my format junks data so it can save bandwidth. They grow worse as I grow older. Sooner or later, I'll have to go to UA for digital restoration work, just as the older Mary Pickford suggested. It works, although those who've had the replacement CGI say the new flesh feels numb and lifeless. But maybe the technology will improve. Maybe the future will be different for digital folks like me. Maybe I'll live forever. Or maybe I won't. Is it selfish to wonder how many years I have left? To worry how much of myself I'll lose along the way? To think that one day I'll be the one staggering through a strange landscape with barely anything left of the person I used to be? Maybe. Probably. In the end, I suspect there's only one real difference between me and Douglas and the nitrate folks, When my electric shadow finally flickers out, there won't be any silver to mark the spot where I fell.
0: Matt Dovey is very tall, very British, and probably drinking a cup of tea right now. His surname rhymes with doopy but any other similarities to the dwarf are coincidence. He has short science fiction and fantasy stories all over the place. Find out more at mattdovey.com or follow him on Twitter at mattdoveywriter. Well, it's nearly time. I need to finish up a few more things before my guests arrive. Do come visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Mm. 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 Gallery of Curiosities is produced under Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivative license. All story copyrights remain with the authors. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by Deus Ex Porto Machina. If you like the show, chat it up with your friends or nominate us for an award. It is that time of year, after all. This episode was produced in February of 2020. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.